Okay, got it. Ready? <clears throat> You're listening to Paul Elmore. Paul Elmore. <laughs> This week, um, the acronym we're using is what? Hope. H was honesty. O is what? Open posture. posture. Uh, Openness. Absolutely. What in the world does openness mean? How, what does that, what does that even mean? Several years ago, there was a a study conducted of um, treatment facilities for people in recovery, um, addictions and things like that. And they, um, huge multi-million dollar study looking at the two different models. One is the privately owned, high-end doctors, high dollars, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars a day. Um, That versus a, let's say, a free state-run, low cost, um, open to anybody, that kind of program. And they're trying to figure out which program is the most effective in treating people. And the uh, researchers, when they found their conclusions, admitted they had a bias. They went in with the assumption that the high-end dollar uh, organization, you're going to get much, much better treatment there. And the, sh- the findings was shocking. You know what they discovered? It actually doesn't matter which treatment facility you attend. The number one determinant of those programs becoming successful is the person's desire or willingness to get healthy. You have the capacity within yourself. It doesn't matter what counselor you see, what program you're in, what church you attend. You have the capacity to determine your own level of success. Now, for some people, that's good news. It's like, I don't have to, I don't have to you know, figure out how to mortgage my house and you know, sell my car to go get help. And for other people, that could be discouraging news because that puts the responsibility on you. That concept, the, your, you have the ability to change and adjust, is, is determined by your level of openness. Do you believe you have the capacity to change? There are, um, well, apparently I'm big into movies today. Let's look at one more, can we? (laughs) Just because, well, it's that good. Uh, You just watched a person moved from closed and guarded to an open posture. Did you guys catch when it happened? Did you see it? We're actually going to go back and... um, look at it again because I want to sh- I want to show you what it's hard to describe openness it's a very ethereal kinds of touchy-feely kind of word but when you can see what it looks like when you know how it um, plays out it's a little bit easier to get a hold of so I'm gonna show it to you one more time and show you where it happens let's jump to the middle here somewhere yes you did It's a tragic thing. How many times do you think he's been told that? He's heard truth 
I think he's heard that more than once. All right. <clears throat> Do you think he's connected with the truth yet? You can see it. It's this dismissive, it's up here, it's head knowledge still. It hasn't moved from here to here yet. He's still guarded and protected, and he's, he's honest. He's able to talk about the abuse that happened and how his stepfather would, would pummel him, but he has not moved into a posture of actually internalizing the truth yet. He still doesn't buy it. He's getting, I'm paying lip service. This is what I'm supposed to do. I know, I know how to play this game. Tell me when it happens. Someone shout out. Can you see it? Can you see where he is? You can almost watch it tangibly move from, am I actually allowed to consider that this might be true. That requires what I call openness. It's the idea that I'm no longer going to hold on to the lie. It is essential for any sort of transformation to happen, especially around shame. Because shame is strongly rooted in the lies and the deceptions that either other people have told us or the lies that we tell ourselves. How does he react with it, by the way? Okay, what's that? Defensiveness. Defensiveness. What was it? Denial. Denial. Yes. And you often see anger. Again, he, you can watch him. He definitely... And it takes a special kind of person to take that hit, to take that overt, I am pushing you away, but I am not going anywhere because I'm going to connect with you. I'm going to keep putting that in front of you and you're not going to have to sit alone in it. That, that right there is probably as close to heaven as you can get. That is connected. That is, we're going to talk about that next week. Okay? P, how to be present. How to be connected. This is what it looks like. He's wrestling with it, and then there it is. It just became real. Honesty again. It's a sacred place to sit, isn't it? It's intimate. It's scary, scary, scary. I wish we all had people who knew how to hold our hearts as well as Sean, <clears throat> Robin Williams' character. We don't always have that. Go back to the cowboy hats. There's a couple things that keep us from being able to maintain an open posture, the things that keep us locked into this shameful place, the things that keep us trapped and rooted in these lies, keep us up here in our head. 
Number one, it's, um, it's an incredibly powerful belief system. The one that says, I don't think I am able to change. I lack the capacity. I am somehow too broken, too wounded, too messed up. I am beyond fixing, I'm beyond redemption. The only thing that is good for me now is to be, well, continue to be mistreated, continue to be abused. I have to settle for the very least that I can get. I eat the breadcrumbs off of the table. I'm not allowed to stand up or defend myself. I am no longer able to, or I have no longer the capacity to be loved in that way. It's the uh, client that I've sat with for several, several years now, and we're still wrestling with this concept. Before she's able to make this transition, her and I have a debate almost every week about why are you doing this work? Why are you sitting with me? And she's actually not quite certain because she spends an awful lot of time with, her, with our time, spending her energy convincing me how no one else in the world will be able to understand her and her pain. No one else would want to understand her and her pain. I've spent a lot of time helping her even enter into that area with me. And every once in a while, we catch a few glimpses of that where you can see the veil come down, and she's willing to sit with me and even consider that I like her, that as a therapist, that I'm not doing it because she pays me, but because I actually might care for her as one human being to another. Of what you saw here, do you think Sean was treating Will that way because he was getting paid? A lot of people actually don't go to counseling because they say, how can anyone who I'm paying actually genuinely care for me? It's a weird conundrum. It, it's a legitimate concern. And yet you get to trust that your therapist, your counselor, actually can you know, provide something for you, might actually connect with you. As a counselor, as being on this side, you know, on the same side that Sean's on, I can tell you I think about my clients when I'm not in session. I worry about them. I pray for them. I hope, I hope the best for them. I actually like some of them. Yeah. <laughs> I won't tell you the ones I don't. <laughs> no. I might have just backed myself into a corner there, didn't I? Ah. Yeah. Actually, let's take a little side trip real quick to go there real quickly, all right? Um, just because there actually might be some other therapists in the room and for those who actually might sit with um, counselors as well. As a rule, if I sit with a person that I recognize pushes my own buttons, that I, and again, that happens for counselors, someone who triggers you in some way, someone that you actually have strong feelings about in the negative way, I don't work with them. My own stuff would get in the way. So I can comfortably, honestly tell you that I actually genuinely care for every one of my clients and the ones that... I notice I can't work with. That's it's kind of like dating. Counseling's like dating. You just have to click with the right person. Um, and there's lots of good counselors out there, but you might just not sync up with that person. So I am, I'm discerning and, and careful with who I sit with. Other counselors are as well. So if you are a counselor or counselor in training, keep that in mind. You don't have to work with everybody. And for those who are looking for a counselor, shop around. It's okay. 
to, to try out several and find out the best, that, best one that kind of syncs up well with you. So I'm going to get myself out of that corner. Good. Man, oh man, oh man. Um, how much time do you think you spend trying to convince yourself or other people that, that you actually deserve some of the shameful feelings that you're sitting in? Do you spend a lot of energy trying to convince other people? Well, this is why it's just why I'm so bad. Why do you think you spend all of that energy trying to defend something so painful? Isn't that a weird conundrum? But it happens a lot. I wrestle a lot with my clients in, the, in that area, and I, we wrestle with it kind of on a day-to-day -day basis all the time. There's a couple of reasons why we um, actually spend some time in that place, why we actually think I might be incapable of change. Anyone have an idea why that feels so true? Um, for me, I know it has a lot to do with just like how I was raised. What do you mean? Um, I grew up in a church that was very shame-based. That's right. Yes. It's a lot more comfortable to sit in old lies because they're very familiar to me. Yeah. It's more uncomfortable to go into a new place even if it's true because it doesn't, it doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. Our paradigm for life has been kind of shaped. And so reconsidering some of those things is, takes a lot of emotional and intellectual effort. We're going to come back to that at the end of this thing, so don't let, me, don't let me forget to come back to that, okay? Why else do you think we spend a lot of time defending how bad we are? Because it's all we know. What do you mean? Well, if you don't, if you don't believe it for yourself, that, that you are a person of worth and value, then your reality is I'm not. How about we phrase it this way? Um, did you know it's impossible to conceive of something that you have never seen of or you're unaware of? You can't, you can't put that into a wrapper because you just are unaware of the ingredients that goes into it. If you've never tasted a chocolate chip cookie um, and you don't know what chocolate chips are, you don't know what flour is, you don't know what salt is, then how can you come up with this idea of a chocolate chip cookie? It's just impossible to put together. So when we have no other um, example or knowledge of what to do, um, then it's hard to even conceive of life potentially even being different. Absolutely. One, other, one or two other reasons. Yeah? Uh, I would say pride in your suffering. Wow, that's a good one. I don't have that one. Explain. Well, I mean, you know, uh, if you've been through you know, a lot of painful experiences, you kind of wear painful experiences like badges. Man, that is so good. I should write that down. <laughs> yes. We gain our identity from our shame. How about that? Yeah. That's smart. Yeah. Yeah. Humbling, that's a good word. I like that. And I don't know how. Yeah. Boy, you guys are smart. Maya. You feel unworthy that if whoever you're with discovers how you really are, they won't like you. Yeah. So that you convince them how terrible they are, 
we could talk the rest of the night on that topic right there. <coughs> We're going to um, push that to next week, but how we disappoint ourselves first so that it's a shorter fall because we are we just know we're going to fall anyway, so we might as well stay on the low rung, so when we do fall, it doesn't hurt as bad. There was one more over here. I think it has to do with the kind of shame orientation to competence. For example, like, if I have a lot of shame over uh, uh, whether or not I'm able or capable, I'm, I'm going to be bowed toward that, the weight of that shame. Yeah. It would lock me in. Kind of spinning on the other side. I have to I have to work so hard to make people to convince other people. Yeah, absolutely. I one more. Go for it, Jimmy. It takes a lot of energy to come out of someplace and be something new. That's so true. You know, um, it doesn't you don't spend a lot of energy dwelling and staying where you are in this yeah. shame, but to come break out of that and to be I'm not that, I'm this, that's a lot of energy. Path of least resistance. Have. Yep, the path of least resistance. We, we slip back into the default mode. By the way, that, let me tag that really, really good. We ebb and flow through the seasons. When we are emotionally strong and resilient, it's actually um, fairly capable of overcoming some of these shame messages and the shame concepts that we carry. When we get tired, physically, emotionally, relationally, personally, spiritually, when we're just running on less fumes, it is much easier to just slip back into the default mode, the path of least resistance, the paradigms that we've had for, for years and years growing up. And we ebb and flow, so you're never going to overcome this completely. It is, where, where am I at in this kind of cycle? Am I aware of how strong I am? And can I just weather this out and, and become stronger again? And no, I'm, I'm going to actually be feeling better about myself later on. So ebbs and flows, for sure. Um, one other probably s strong theme that we get of why I cannot change, I'm incapable of it, is because we keep screwing up. We have lots of evidence to say, see, this proves that I am not very good because if I was good, I would no longer make these mistakes. But I just made a mistake, therefore, this proves I am incapable of change. It's kind of built into the definition of shame. I make mistakes because I am bad. But when we kind of go to that evidence place, it's just a hard message to kind of unmire ourselves from and to escape from. That's um, one of the two enemies of shame. I don't think I'm able to change, a capacity. The second one, and this one is going to be um, interesting. Um, I don't want to change. I know I should. I know I should be different, but I actually don't want to. This weekend, uh, probably for the last two weeks, huh, which is interesting because given the topic that I'm talking on and what I'm doing a lot of studying in, for the last two weeks, my wife and I have been out of sync. We have been missing each other 
communication-wise, we've been having lots and lots of disagreements, um, misunderstandings. What other nice words can I use for it? <laughs> we've been fighting a lot. That's the reality of it. I sure wish that when you became a counselor and you knew all these things about you know, conflict and healthy relational styles that it just sunk in and it was easy to do these things, but it just don't work that way. It just doesn't. So as my wife and I have been on different pages for so often, I found myself on Sunday after, it always happens at the wrong times. My day off, I'm looking forward to spending time with the wife and the kids. We're just looking forward to having a good day. And one small comment or one wrong look or one wrong thing. And now we're not connected anymore. Can you, you know that tension that's in the air? Anyone familiar with that? It's like, all right, there is something and we got we to gotta do something about it. Early in our marriage, we would spend a good half a day walking around playing that dance, you know, not really looking at each other, not really talking to each other because we didn't want to get into it. Now, fortunately, we're, we don't spend that much time apart, but we get together and we still takes a ton of work to get reconnected. And what I found inside myself, especially this weekend, was I felt wronged. I felt like my wife didn't understand me, she treated me poorly, she didn't do something right by me. And I did not want to give up my anger. I wanted to stay there. I wanted to. I hate to admit it. It's embarrassing to admit it. But I did not want to move into a posture of understanding or connection again. And I had to ask myself, well, the first reason I had to ask myself is because I knew I was going to be sitting in front of you guys today. And it's, again, it's a little embarrassing to not live out some of the things that we kind of talk about. And so I wrestled with, why in the world do I want to stay angry? How does it serve me? How does it help me? Anyone have any ideas? Hopefully I'm not the only one who has stayed in this place. Because if I am, I'm going to feel really bad and, and ashamed. Um, why do we stay in that place? Anyone want to venture a guess? It confirms a negative perception that we have, like, or wanting some form of justification. Like, if you can get some, you're getting mileage out of that sense of justification and the bad experience, like, we're wanting some yeah, like Judge Judy going. Building. Yeah, yeah. So you can finally figure it out and explain it to us. <laughs> we'll get to that in just a second. <laughs> yeah. Because you want that person to say they're sorry or, or feel guilty or somehow confess to us that they've lost us. Yeah. I want them to hurt first. Yeah. That's how it should happen. She should hurt first. You had something? Go for it. Yeah. That's not so great, but that's what I feel like inside, just kind of like yeah. something different. Yeah, I agree. Ben? It keeps you in control. 
Oh, what do you mean by that? There's the C word. Well, uh, yeah, if, you're, if you hold on to the anger and you hold that piece, then you get to control her emotions, you get to control your own emotions, you control the situation. If you release it, then you no longer have that control and you have to look at your own, your own stuff and maybe from her perspective. How many of you hate that answer as much as I do? Man. <laughs> Letting go of control. That should be next year. Control, okay? Failure, shame, and control. <laughs> Woo! That's a good one. Anyone else want to venture a guess? I would say for myself, it'd be pride. Pride? What do you mean? Well, I'm hurt. I'm so sorry for myself. I, I don't want to be the first to admit, you know, break the ice, try and cave in. And, yeah. Yeah, yeah. One more. I think it's really easy when you say you're out of control to validate your own emotion. To validate your own emotion. Yeah. Like if I stay angry, then that means that I clearly am right. If I stay angry, then I am clearly right. That's like saying, I'm lost, but I'm going really fast, because that means I'm, I'm in control and I, and I know I'm still driving. Yeah, that's true. It's not okay. It's not okay. But you're right. I, I, I absolutely agree that that is, that is what it's all about. When you stay in that place, um, I'm going to go back to Ben, you nailed it around the head. It is that level of um, I am able to keep myself safe. I'm not, I don't run the risk of being hurt anymore by somebody else. Now, I'm hurting myself, but I can control that, and that's allowed. I'm allowed to hurt myself instead of letting someone else hurt me. Do you see the ridiculousness of that argument? Because either way, what, what's happening to you? You're getting hurt. But we like the control piece. When you can maintain a level of openness, when you choose to say, I am no longer going to maintain this posture. I'm, I'm going to intentionally open myself up and say, I'm going to not be angry anymore. And that's not even the right terms. I'm going to, how do I phrase it? I'm going to consider that my emotions aren't the only ones going on in this situation. They're real, they're valid, but they're not the only ones. And so I can entertain a broader scope, a bigger perspective of the situation going on. When I open myself up to that, um, things shift. <coughs> when my wife and I this weekend, when she's sitting and talking to me and sharing with me how, how, how she didn't intend to hurt me, I had to... I had to move to a place that says, I'm going to trust and believe that my wife actually didn't intend to hurt me. Even though I still am, her intention wasn't, wasn't designed for that, and maybe it was just a mistake. And if I can move into that posture and let go of that, um, let go of that position, it moves us through that through that resolution much, much quicker. When I am heard, 
well, what happens, and it's kind of ironic, but when I move into that place, my wife can actually see it physically on me. My posture changes. It's that, it's what we saw up here with Sean and, and Will. It's that defiant, I'm not going to, to, you, your whole posture just changes. You watch it move from here to here. You, you just learn to sit in the discomfort rather than trying to avoid it. When you learn to sit in that discomfort rather than trying to avoid it, you move through it much, much faster. Questions or thoughts about any of that? In the back first, and then we'll get to you. You like to cope? Yeah. yeah. What do you mean? I'm not sure I'm tracking. Um, no, you know. Um, frankly, I like to make a trip down to the basement every once in a while. And so by being able to stay angry, I allow myself to do what I like to do to cope. Oh. It's a little bit enjoyable. Sure. The reason we choose an addictive behavior is because it actually feels good. And if you have an excuse to, to do something that is unhealthy, you, you know, you get something nice out of the deal, right? It feels good to get buzzed on insert substance here, okay? It really does. It's not a bad, not a bad idea at all. Question over here, I thought? Yeah. In a way that's not appropriate. Yeah. So I'm just wondering where the balance is there. That's a really, really good question. There is a significant difference between having someone who recognizes your value and has a history of integrity and, and responsible relationship with you and someone who doesn't. When they're the story I just told is, a, is one little snippet of a much broader relationship that's much deeper on a whole bunch of different levels. Um, abusive relationships have certain characteristics which healthy relationships don't. Inequity, um, lack of empathy and compassion, those kinds of things. And so those kinds of relationships have markers that would be different and you have to look at kind of the whole picture. Um, I will probably suggest, though, that in healthy relationships, you never run out of opportunity to extend grace to the other person. Um, I've been married 18 years, and I haven't quite filled the quota of how much grace I have to give my wife, and then I'm in the clear. Then I'm, all the, I'm free. I don't have to give her any more grace. She, she has enough. 
it will be on and on and on. After 18 years of marriage, I'm still finding new ways to hurt her. And she's finding new ways to hurt me, usually because our relationship is becoming deeper and actually more open and more vulnerable. And that's where the really soft, tender, squishy parts are. And sometimes it doesn't take as much to hurt those things. Um, And we learn how to be connected and safe in those very tender, very open places. It's scary. It is scary to be seen that way. And it is the most rewarding relationship. It's good to be known, good to be seen in that way. And it's probably the most redemptive relationship to overcome shame. Because it directly challenges those shame messages. I'm going to be seen. You're not going to run away in terror. Therefore, I'm accepted by someone else, and it's easier to accept myself. Yeah. Um, I, I think one of the other differences is um, as a whole the effect that those words have. Because if an abuser says, well, I just really didn't mean to hurt you, but then it happens again and again and again, well then, you know, the effect is the words mean nothing. Yeah. But um, in an honest relationship, what we're heading towards is, is change, right? So if you say, I really didn't mean to hurt you, well, the next time that that comes around, then instead of repeating that behavior, there's a, a it might be subtle, but it, you know, over time, yeah. the, the object is that the behavior in the relationship changes. Yeah. And in an abusive situation, in that kind of case, it, it doesn't, because that person, at all costs, has to maintain control. Yeah, that inequality again. Yeah. I don't know if this might be like convincing me to make sense of the question, but I was just thinking sometimes it takes time for people to change because yeah. they're genuinely trying. Yep. So maybe they genuinely didn't mean to hurt you, but they still might not like, be better right away. Yeah. That's when you are the hurter, when you're the person that has hurt someone, when you can move out of that shameful place of beating yourself up and go to that person and say, I know that I just hurt you. I recognize that. I'm calling it out before you have to call it out. I, I stepped in it again. I own that. I take responsibility for that. What can I do to make it right? That is re- remarkably redemptive. And what you were looking for in the, I, I maintain this place because I want the other person to hurt, the power of empathy to overcome shame is probably one of the key ingredients. When you can have someone else who sits in your story and hurts for you, when they connect with your pain and they hold some of it, they don't own it, they don't put it on themselves, but when they say, I hurt because you hurt, that's the fastest way to end a fight with your spouse. It really is. This weekend, it got really, really, got really good. <laughs> I was mad enough. And again, in, in, in the fights with my wife, we have a rule. We just don't walk away, okay? We just don't leave the rooms. We don't go storming off. We don't drive away. We, we sit in it together. But we also have permission to call timeouts. So it was just, I, my emotions got triggered so strong, and I was so, so 
cooking <laughs> that I said, honey, right now I just need to walk away for 10 minutes. So I walked downstairs and um, we were refinishing some bookcases and I had just put the second layer of um, varnish on so I was rubbing it down to get ready for the third one. And that's a good way to get rid of some energy. You, know, you just gotta keep rubbing that down. And I intentionally went down there. I needed to, I needed to displace this physical energy that I had because I was just, you know that, that it's just pumping. Your heart's tight, tight. You're, pumping, your chest is tight, you can just feel this going on. When you work it out physically, it's, it's a good way to dispel that. And I was down there for five, ten minutes doing that, and my wife comes down, and she, she looks me in the eyes, and she says, she, she looks me in the eyes, and she says, I obviously hurt you, and I never want to hurt you, but I know that I did, and because I did, I hurt. I'm so sorry. I feel bad because you are hurting. And I, I could literally feel it in that moment, just go, it's like all the air deflates out of the balloon because, because she's there again. That disconnection is gone. We are now connected. We are seen. She, she didn't own she didn't have to admit, you know, oh, you were writing this, and, but I was writing that. We didn't have to go there. She hurt because I hurt. And in that moment, all of it dispelled. And we could spend time together. And, and we actually didn't, there was nothing else that needed to be talked about. We didn't have to go back and say, well, here's what you did, here's what I did. It was done. It kind of just resolved itself. Empathy. In that moment, when you deflated, yeah. when she said that, yeah. was there momentary shame? for the whole thing in the first place? Was there this moment of where you look down, you sigh, you breathe out, and you think to yourself, like, and you feel about that small for a moment? Was, was there any of that? Um, and when there is that, how do you move away from it? Yeah. Healthily? Yeah. I'm not sure that I could identify a moment of shame in, in, that, in that scenario for me. Um, what I can tell you is when we do make mistakes, when we are in conflict, when we have behaved poorly, when, when we have faulted someone else, one of the harder aspects is to forgive ourselves, is how to stop beating ourselves up and, and to continue to accuse ourselves. When we do that, it actually prevents us from being able to have empathy for the pain that we inflicted on someone else because we're so focused on our own shame. We're so focused on our own story that we are unavailable. We're unavailable to go meet this person who I've now wounded. Does that make sense? How do you interrupt that moment of me? It's the, um, it's the client I sat with recently who, for the first time, had to admit that she's not perfect. And she, <laughs> and anyway, it was a good session. You know, lots of shifts happening. Um, she had to recognize that she was allowed to make mistakes. She's allowed to do things that actually hurt and impact other people. I wish I didn't. I wish I never hurt my wife. I would pay good money to figure out what that pill looks like and take it. It would just save so much heartache and grief for all of us. In fact, only one of us would need to take it. It would work out pretty good. Um, <clears throat> but that actually, it prevents us from being emotionally available to care for the person that we wounded. So how to move out of that place 
you number one, give yourself, you gotta be honest, right? You have to say, here's what I did, I'm not gonna hedge, I'm not gonna to spin it, I'm not going to sugarcoat it in any way. Here's the mistakes I made towards you. Um, kind of like the first movie clip we watched here. Yep, screwed you on that one, sorry. That's just what I did. Um, you have to then move into the, I am, I am gonna be open and I'm going to be able to conceive that I am not flawed inherently, that I actually may potentially still be okay. Those two things right there, and then as we move on to the next ones in the next couple of weeks, if you can then be present with the person and then move through that experience with them, the P and the E. So put the whole package together and the shame will prevent a lot of the conflict from happening in the relationships and all those kinds of things. Why we don't choose openness. I'm going to jump ahead real quick because we're going to get short on time. Uh, basic reason why you don't choose openness is I'd have to actually consider that I'm wrong. How many of us love standing up and say, I am wrong? We just hate it. We hate it. In fact, we push real hard against ever being in that position. We spin, we do everything else. But overcoming shame through openness requires you to say, I, have all, I might have been believing a lie. I was wrong. When you can own that place, you'll move into an open posture much, much faster. I might not get it right every time. I might be wrong. Think of, think of the message that you carry right now. What is this? For me, I wrestled with the message over and over and over. I'm an inconvenience. I never should inconvenience anybody else. And if I am, I am somehow wrong and flawed and broken. For me to be able to move into, I'm actually wrong. That's not true. I'm not an inconvenience. I'm not an inconvenience. If I ask you for help, that, that doesn't make me bad. Huh, that's, being able to move it into that place, I'm wrong, I believe something that's wrong, I'm wrong. Dang it, I'm wrong. I hate being wrong, but I'm wrong. Admit that and you'll move into the openness place a little bit easier. One more, one more clip. And let's go into whoa. This is early in the movie.
have a problem. You focus on the problem, you can't see the solution. Never focus on the problem. Look at me. How many of you think you have the capacity to look beyond what is painfully obvious, the tangible things in your life? How many of you think that there is more to you than your experiences? You watched Patch make a paradigm shift, he was able to say, there's something beyond the obvious answer. Do you believe that you actually can see something else? Do you think that there might be more to your story than the limited perspective that you might be holding? In the Old West, what color hat did the good guys wear? What color hat did the bad guys wear? Black. So, in this picture, how many good guys and bad guys? One bad guy and one good guy. Let's all assume, since we're talking about shame, that we're wearing the black hat, that we somehow see ourselves as bad, because that's just the evidence that we have. We compare ourselves to other people, guess what? We're bad, okay? There's another bad hat down there, they're bad too. That's just who it is. But if we were able to pull the camera back a little bit further, are we the only bad person? Shame is, is a very, very limited perspective on our scope and on our stories. We seem to think that we are the only ones in this place. And yet, if we pull back, if we get an accurate view of the entire situation, there's an awful lot of other people sitting in that exact same place that we are. Yeah?
Yeah. Anyone want to give a shot at it? It's a good question. Why do we grant more grace to others than to ourselves? How? When we don't have a position of openness, we land in that very place. Does that make sense? When we consider, I'm open to new ideas about myself, that's when that can start to be changed. We can let go of that. You're right. You're right. Why else? Why else do we grant grace to other people but not ourselves? Possibly. Uh, I think that could happen in some situations. I think there's probably a little bit broader answer to that. Reverse that. You said we can see the truth about others better than we can see the truth about ourselves. Yeah. Reverse that. Very good. Very good. We have more information on us. Right? What? We're better than Ben. Yep. Because we look at the motivations, the stuff we haven't told anybody else, all this extra stuff, the secrets. And so all of that gets compounded onto this belief about ourselves, and it actually keeps us rooted in that sea. If everyone else knew all of this, they would think the same thing that I think about me. We have more information on ourselves rather than others. We have limited information on other people, and it's easy to grant grace and forgiveness when we only have some of those things. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Which is why we started off with the H, with honesty. When we speak honestly about ourselves and we put all that internal information. Did you know that you actually process it with different parts of your melon? Your brain processes it differently when you say things out loud. When you speak it, you're now using two different parts of your brain, the auditory and the, um, auditory and the speaking centers, different parts of your brain. And you process it differently. When you write it, you're using two more, tactile touch and vision. And you actually are lighting up much more parts of your brain. Haven't figured out how to get smell in there yet, but um, you know, you write with a smelly pen or something. I don't know, but when you do, they've actually done some fascinating studies that when you actually write out some of this and then read it back to yourself, it's almost like you're reading someone else's words, and you're able to now grant that person on the page much more grace. It's fascinating. It's a, that's why counselors all the time tell you journal, write, you know, do all those things. It's not just because we got nothing else to tell you, because it actually works. It actually actually serves a purpose. I think I really I really hear what you're saying because um, I've noticed that I'm not even sure whether when I extend grace to someone, I don't even know whether that's really actually grace. Yeah. Because as I get to know someone better, a good example would be my wife. I know her probably best out of everyone um, that I know, and. Uh, it looks, the way I extend grace to her looks a lot like how I extend grace to myself, hmm. you know? Um, and so that's like really, like I find the more grace that I actually accept, the more I'm able to actually give out. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. We love staying rooted. Yeah, it's easier and more comfortable staying rooted in the painful places. We don't like change, by the way. Does anyone, does anyone know that? We all talk about it, but actual change, we just do not like it. We choose a known hell over an unknown heaven all the time. We choose a known hell because it's known. We know how to deal with it. The unknown, that's even scarier than the crap we might be sitting in. Um, can you guys give me seven more minutes? Is everyone doing all right? All right, because we're already past a little bit past 8.30, but I've got a few more things I want to tag. Um, openness have, happens on, or needs to happen on an emotional level, not an intellectual level. level. It's, not a, it's not a thinking pattern, it's an emotional pattern. We work on two, on two things, feelings level and thinking level. Um, all the time sitting with clients, I'll, I'll ask them a question, and they'll give me the, the answer that's up here. Um, you know, can you go do this assignment? Yeah, I'm going to go do this assignment. And you can see it in their eyes that they're going, yeah, but this is not going to work at all. This is a waste of my time. Why, why, why would I even do this? That two levels of here's what I should say, here's what I want it to do, but the truth, the reality is I don't have any faith in it. I don't trust it. I don't believe it. It's not going to happen. I can't change. All those things live on this kind of second level. This is the level we're talking about. If this level changes, everything else changes. If you can truly conceive and believe, again, that you are capable of changing, that you're able to grow, and if you can feel that, if you can catch that glimmer of hope, if you are no longer hopeless, if that, air, if that level isn't damaged beyond repair, all sorts of amazing things can change. So be aware of, start catching the two different levels of dialogue. Okay, Here's what I'm going to do but I really just don't think it's ever going to happen. But i got to be doing something, so I'm just going to do all this. If you, if you don't have that second layer engaged on that level, don't do it yet. Okay? Get, or work really hard to get that second layer caught up to the first layer. Does that make sense? Um, you get to suspend your belief system. And that's hard sometimes. I'm going to choose to be open to things that I never even considered would be a possibility. I'm going to suspend my disbelief for a few minutes. And if I can do that, if I can suspend that disbelief, I might be open to all sorts of crazy new concepts. Now, that's hard for some folks. Some people say, my belief system is the only thing I have to hold on to. But what happens when that belief system is inherently flawed or that paradigm is skewed? Then that belief system keeps us locked in a scary place. So I'm asking you to, to even conceive of it. You don't have to take action on it yet, okay? But just be open to considering it. What if these other people are right? What if what they say about me is actually true? What if? I'm going to play a lot with that game, with that, with that phrase, what if. Um, this last week, I sat with a client, and she has this belief that she is unloving, unlovable, um, 
She's lonely. Why would anyone want to spend time with her? All of those things. And so we sat for about 20 minutes and we worked through this exercise where <clears throat> she divided herself in half. It was a very strange session, but she divided herself in half. She took, she took the one person who had all those negative beliefs and we let, that, we let that one part of her be fully that, that worried, scared, insecure, um, um, shame-filled person, and we let that person sit on the couch next to her. And then when that person was kind of separated out from her, kind of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, guided imagery kind of thing, when that person got separated out, then the person that was left was this person that potentially was wanted, kind, lovable, all, these, all the positive sides, okay? And then what I asked her to do is I said, I want you to picture this good person standing up and walking out of my office. And she goes on and, and does her day. She goes to work. She does all these things. And this lonely, scared, hurt person, she's going to spend the day with me. She's going to sit in my office, and I'm going to take care of her. You don't have to take care of her at all today. You don't have to bring her with you. I know she's a burden. I know she's heavy. But she doesn't get to come with you today. I'm going to take care of her. And when she breaks out of the room and catches up with you where you're at, take a minute and say, Paul, Paul's taking care of you now. And picture her walking back to my office, opening the door, sitting on the couch, staying there for a while. That's, a, that's moving into the place of openness and even conceiving that, that this stuff she doesn't have to carry anymore. And her feedback was, I feel lighter. I feel like I actually can go and enjoy the day now. There was a shift on that emotional level, which, which makes it more possible to actually experience the day in a different way. Your paradigm's different. The filter's different. You get to experience the same situations, but through different lenses. That's um, one way to maintain this openness, is to kind of suspend your, suspend your disbelief and put them off to one side. Um, Probably lastly, or one of the last things here, yeah. It is easier to believe in yourself when someone else does it first. It's easier. Now, some of you might not always get that luxury, but it's easier because you have someone to argue with. <laughs> and they can argue from a clearer perspective than you might actually have about yourself. Um, I think I told you this in the first week. As a counselor, I know lots of really good tips on how to have healthy relationships, but when I get into the midst of my own relationship with my family and other people, and I'm not doing it right, I do try to pull up some of these skills and tips I have, but it sounds differently, it sinks in differently into my heart when someone else tells me those things. Same information, I already have it, but when someone else, when someone else hands those to me or sits in that with me, I just, I take it in differently, process it with a different part of the brain or whatever it is, but when you have someone else who can do that, um, it helps process that, which means find the safe people. Find the healthy people in your life. We're built for relationship. Don't isolate. Get caught. <sighs> Questions at all? I'm going to leave the last one till next week so we can kind of start from there. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Yeah. 
Hi. What's up? I would argue that you didn't nail the session. <laughs> if all they got was the right answers. There is there's more than just the intellectuals, intellectual side. And yes, there are many people who find tremendous comfort in keeping things up here. Um, who are very skilled at keeping things up there because they've done it for a very long time, who find it very hard to naturally let yourself move into that emotional connection of just sitting and being. That's not a character flaw. It's a, it's a maladaptive, self-protective strategy. It's something that kept you safe at one point in your life and now is actually not helping as much. It's the basketball playing Eskimo. Anyone remember that story? Did I tell you that story? The basketball playing Eskimo? Oh. We probably don't have time for that one. Oh, come on. <laughs> can't bring it up. There was a little Eskimo boy. <laughs> for those who don't want to hear, you can leave. Um, little basketball, uh, little Eskimo boy um, grew up out on the icebergs, lived in an igloo, um, and from the very first day of life, he learned very important, very important lesson. You never ever go outside without your sealskin hat, coat, boot, gloves, pants, or else you will freeze on the ice. That is essential. So he was a very good Eskimo boy, and every day, first thing he would put on his sealskin hat, coat, boots, gloves, the whole meal deal, and go play and do all that. And he grew up and 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 did just fine. But he was really good at basketball. In fact, he was the best basketball playing Eskimo in his entire high school. And um, he got uh, scouted and recruited, and he was the very first boy in his tribe to receive a full-ride scholarship to go play basketball. So he is just excited about this. He can't believe it. He can't wait. So the day comes, packs his bags, jumps on the plane, and um, goes and plays basketball for the college that recruited him. He gets down there. After about three weeks of training camp, this guy sucks. He can't throw a ball. He can't get it in the basket. He can't keep up with his teammates. He, can't, he just can't play ball at all. And the coaches are going, man, we got stuck with a lemon here. What's going on? And he had created a friendship with one of the other basketball players there. And he says, in a moment of honesty, you know what, I think I'm not doing real good. Can you give me some feedback? And the guy says, yeah, you're, you're not doing real good at all. He says, can you give me any ideas or tips? I mean, was my form wrong? What am I doing? And the guy says, you know, I'm not really entirely sure what's going on, um, but I am kind of curious. You play basketball with sealskin hat and coat and gloves and boots and pants and, and jacket and all of that, and the rest of us are wearing shorts and tennis shoes, and, you know, we have no shirts on. This is southern Florida. Why are you playing in all of that? And this little Eskimo kid says, well, Everybody knows you never go outside without your sealskin hat and coat and boots. You will freeze. It's very silly to do that. And his friend says, maybe that doesn't work as good here as it did back home. Maybe that lesson which kept you alive and kept you safe at one point actually is now hindering you in this point. Can you imagine what that Eskimo kid felt 
the very first time he took off his coat and let the wind and felt the air on his skin. Can you imagine how uncomfortable that might be? We adapt strategies to help us survive in all sorts of scenarios that we live in, growing up or as adults even. But when we move out of that scenario, the very same strategies that kept us safe can now hinder us. And so the trick is to know, to not actually, to not dismiss that strategy, because if he goes back home, he better bring a sealskin hat and coat and boots. He needs to hang on to that strategy if you go back into that environment. But you have to add to your toolbox. You have to have more strategies that work in different scenarios. So when he's in this situation over here, it might be safe to emotionally connect and be seen and to learn how to move without the sealskin stuff. And you might need to have someone who's willing to walk with you and to, to, who is skilled in being able to understand how emotions and feelings work and can draw some of that out for you if you don't know how to play basketball without all the sealskin on. So sealskin or basketball playing Eskimo. It's a popular story. <laughs> um, any other questions? All right. Homework then. I want you to play the what if game. Go home, and if you were given a magic wand and you could change reality, and you didn't have to worry about what is real, what restrictions you actually have right now, if all of your scenario could change, and you wanted your life to be how you wanted it to be, what if? What would you do? How would you view yourself? What would you want to hear about yourself? What would you say about yourself? What would you do for a job? What people would you be with? Where would you live? What would you do? Give yourself permission to dream, to fantasize, to, to play with the possibility. You're looking for an emotional connection. You're looking for the, I can taste it. I can feel it. I want it. I want it so bad. Scripture uses the word longing. We long for something. Let yourself long for something. One last thing and then we'll get out of here. Openness is not evidential based. Okay? You can't become open once you see that life's working out good for you. That's not how it works. To maintain an open posture, to move into this place of I can actually conceive that something's good requires faith. You actually have to take a step without any evidence. It is a spiritual act. Hebrews talks about faith is believing in things not seen. I believe, even though there's all the evidence to the contrary, I believe that I am still valuable and wanted and good. 
have faith. Now, for some of you, that might actually be hard. I can't actually believe it until I can see it, I can taste it, I can touch it, I can smell it, I can feel it. But it's a spiritual step. We'll probably talk a little bit more about that next time. Yes? Yes. So, <laughs> so how do you change yourself? Yeah. If you're to suspend, suspend all of your belief system. For me, what if I'm actually not an inconvenience? What would I do? If I was an inconvenience, man, I would have these friends, I'd do these things, I'd try these experiences, I would da 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 da. If I wasn't, what, would it, what freedom would come with that? All right? Let me pray real quick, and then we will um, let you get out of this very warm room. Father, again, it is um, an honor and a privilege to be known by you, to be known by you. The fact that the way that we view ourselves is not new information to you. In fact, you know us better than we know ourselves, and yet you still loved us and died for us. Lord, I would simply ask that we would be able to align our perspective a little closer to yours, that we would be able to have your eyes and see us and see our hearts the way that you see us. For those in the room right now, Lord, who are still wrestling with levels of shame which feel insurmountable, I pray that you will give them a supernatural break from that this week that they can just feel some peace, that the idea of suspending that belief about them um, would become real and tangible for them and that they could experience a different style of life. Thank you that you're a good God. Thank you that we can serve you. In your most holy name, amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you'd like more information, please visit paulelmore.com.